You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Today is a really cool podcast because we get to talk about shamanism. And in a recent episode, I talked with a cultural anthropologist um, who has had a bit of a negative take or sort of like, what, why are so many people saying that they have a shamanic practice when they don't really? So it was an interesting conversation. And now we have what I'm going to say is a real shaman named Jorge Hachumac, who studied in Peru. And he just came out with a book um, called Journeying Through the Invisible that is fantastic and is worth it's worth your time if you're interested in, in the spiritual side of biohacking. And the reason I like this is that, yes, I have the encyclopedia of shamanism one and two, and you have to be either high or drink a lot of coffee just to read it. And uh, when you look at, at this book, it's approachable, it's understandable, and it's very, very readable. So if you wanted to just understand more about you know, what is shamanism? How does it work? This book will teach you that. With no further ado, Jorge, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. How did you get started as a shaman? Were you born saying, I want to be a shaman, and you were you know, eating mushrooms mm-hmm. when you were three? Or <laughs> how, does, how does one become a shaman? How does, how does one become a shaman? Well, I mean, I never looked for it, you know. I never uh, tried it or, or was pursuing some doors. It was offered to me, actually, as a learning. And um, I guess you are born a healer, but then you need the training and the, and the learn from other people's experiences. And there's so much techniques, you know, plus the shamanic gifts that are passed, you know, is like a force that is passed from one person to the other one. Um, through the fluids to the breath, uh, breath, yeah, breath. And uh, but I mean, when I look back, I was a lot of things that I was doing as a child. You know, like we were going on vacations with my parents, and when I was arriving to the beach, I was talking to the beach and you know saying hi and welcome us. And I was eight, ten years old. You know, I was saying goodbye and you know talking to the waves and the animals. And I think there is something. Uh, but I never connected with that at all. Um, but then later in my life, you know, I started in, in uh, martial arts and Tai Chi and the practice of Nei Kung, you know, the, the Chinese frame of vital energy and breathing and, and moving so, so, with your intention. This is really cool because you are a Peruvian of Spanish descent, but you started out using uh, Tai Chi and Qigong. In yeah. Lima, right? In Lima, Lima Peru. <laughs> yeah, Lima has a very old Chinatown, you know? It's mm-hmm. as, as old as probably San Francisco. The really immigration started at the end of the 1840s. Uh, and I discovered that place when I was at university. I was training as an uh, agricultural engineer, you know? I was just having, everything was rolling well. I was just going to have like a career into that. But I discovered that world, I was probably 20, and um, I felt that uh, it was touching an archetype, you know, of something 
way more universal than just you know the, the teachings about production and things like that and um i start practicing i mean i had like a epiphany when i visited this an ancient temple that this is still kind of hidden still in chinatown in lima and um I felt like a fish in the water, and then I practiced for several years. I had several teachers. Three of them were uh, uh, of, of a good level of Tai Chi. They were all from China. You know, there's a strong colony and people coming back and forth all the time. Um, and then my last teacher, she was a lady that was from Shanghai, and she was from the um, from the approach of going to competition and, and those things. You know, my previous teachers were really despising competition. You know, they thought that you cannot prove anything. It's everything is about moving energy and none of the judges that are checking you might tell what you are really doing inside, you know. But anyway, we were five or six people and we tried to please our teachers. So we went to competition. And then for a few years, I was national champion of Tai Chi forums, metropolitan champion of forums in Peru. I went into 98 and uh, won the South American form, tai, tai Chi form competition gold medal. And those things um, coincided. It was like a turn of destiny. Those things coincided with the fact that uh, the chief of the social security in Peru at the time, 1995, when I was already practicing and, and competing, uh, opened up a spot in the national security social security hospitals for alternative practices for elders so i was kind of on the news you know on, on, on the newspaper on tv so they invited me to teach on uh, 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 to implement some of the tai chi uh, courses for elders you know me and other people i wasn't alone and um, so in the next years, I was I moved to the north, and then I was working in a lot of clinics, hospitals in the little valleys, the fishermen towns, going to a lot of remote areas of the north of Peru. And the north of Peru actually inherits a very strong cultural tradition that is completely different than the Incas and completely different than the Amazon. You know, a lot of people think in terms of Peruvian shamanism are about Inca stuff and the Caros and all that. But that's only in a certain region. Peru is a, yeah. Peru is a continental country, you know? It contains... It, it's big. I I admit to making that mistake. I, I went to Peru in 1999, actually, mm -hmm. and I wanted to do ayahuasca, but I was uh, in the, the Incan... It was in Cusco, and I uh, bothered the guest house, where I was saying, until they found a northern shaman who was practicing in, in that region, uh, a jungle shaman who came. That was my my first and actually um, only experience with ayahuasca. Oh, okay. uh, it was in a you know stone circle done in the traditional way, um, overlooking a Saxe woman. And funny enough, just by coincidence, I'll be in Lima and again in about two weeks after this call. Didn't plan it that way, but it worked out. Oh, visiting good. again. Yeah, yeah. I'm going back to Peru probably in October. I'm trying to do some promotion of the book. Um, ah, very. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So, so to go back to the story, uh, I was working in those little villages. I worked for several years, and I was so committed, you know, with my uh, exercises. I did my own personal um, um, resume, you know, of my exercises, what I learned from my different teachers. I kept what was complementary. I chose the best of what was similar. 
And I was having great results. Actually, it was a small documentary about, about the results and the classes, you know, with all these people. So it turned out, I never knew it myself, that a lot of these elders that I was visiting, that I was going to the villages, to the parties, going to their houses, I was so committed that my work was beyond my hours at the hospital. I was really bringing herbs to them and visiting the relatives. Um, that some of them suddenly, it happens at the same time, it was very interesting in different valleys, some of them reveal themselves and they say, you know, uh, teacher, you are good with us, you know, I would like to show you some things, would you like to learn this? Or that mountain that you see when you are driving through the desert on the left, you know, it's a special place. You should go there and fast for a couple of days and be alone and see if the mountain tells you something, you know, or her. Mm -hmm. I felt that I was taking care of the people of the land, you know, on a very committed way. And suddenly the spirits of the land, the people wanted to share some of what they had. And that's how my new chapter, my new life chapter mm -hmm. started. You know, I never asked for it. I was offered to learn and it was for me to say yes or no. And I spent the next 10 years traveling, going to the mountains, like ancient pyramids of the beaten path places. Mm -hmm. Um, and it took me to travel into the jungle, the northern, everything about the north of Peru, the northern mountains. And I went into the jungle. I crossed the borders to Colombia, to Brazil, you know, through the rivers. And then that's how I learned and, and, and build up my toolkit, you know, my craft. You're really interesting because you, know, you, you weren't born into this. Um, you didn't have, you know, when you were 15 or 10 or something, you, the the village shaman didn't invite you into the practice. You didn't have a near-death experience. You you curated this. And what I have found is that when you're doing certain kinds of work, others, like you said, will unveil themselves. They'll, they'll approach and say, oh, I see what you're doing. And then they show you something. And, and I've, I've been blessed to have a, a few experiences like that as well. Mm -hmm. And you're mm -hmm. like, wow, like, like there's people who don't always show things. In fact, a lot of that part of things is, is hidden. Yeah. You've, yeah. you've also though, you've chosen to at least temporarily step out of your normal life. I mean, you live in a off the grid and part of the jungle yeah. that's three boat rides away from civilization with 45 families. Yet here we are connecting over the internet. You're in Connecticut right now and, and you decided to have a public face again. And you've done this. You had a public face when you were in the government in Peru teaching elderly people. You went silent and learned and now you're public again. Why decide to go public to talk about that? I, I don't think if there is so much thought about that. Um, I was working very hard in Peru. You know, I have, a, when I work in the villages of the area in other parts, I never charge to people. We are connected into a system of bartering, you know. Whenever somebody needs something, if you have the skills, either psychic or shamanic skills or just physical skills, you know. Everybody helps everybody. And then the flow of energy of the community comes back and forth whenever you need it, you know. And, and I'm very happy to that system. Um, but I... Um, I had very tough times at the time, you know, I was married and, and I had like uh, uh, two girls that I was raising, you know, from my partner and uh, we were struggling a lot and the government, the pay was small and it was a change too, you know, that uh, so we were surviving basically with our activities, but we kept on going. 
And then suddenly one time, I, uh, I, I remember I helped a lady with a, a kind of a cirrhosis and liver cancer. And um, her son uh, connected, that was living in a European country, connected with some people that were traveling looking for shamanism, you know, for experiences. So I connect with them, and then suddenly after I took them to the desert, we were, they got some important uh, outcomes. So I started to get invitations to travel. And then suddenly everything changed because I felt there is so much need, there is so much appreciation, but at the same time, kind of one, if you want, there's a pedag pedagogical side on me, on me, I guess, that I wanted when I saw the way the knowledge was taken and was approached and the things that were happening that were really bad, you know? <laughs> like so I, said, what? I wanted, I mean, that people were doing ceremonies without the right protocols and there was a, a lot of collateral damage. Thank you for saying that. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole chapter on the book where I'm kind of, yeah. you know, explaining a little bit of my experiences on that. So, um, I think that a, a vocation of an educational thing came into me, you know, and um, so I have done some trips here and there, and then the book just came because COVID forced me to stay in the house, you know, but it was extremely, extremely uh, strict with, with the lockdowns. And um, I have been hearing for years when people have been coming to the jungle, people I have met, uh, I don't do many ceremonies. I work with a very small amount of people and I really like to wrap our elbows for several days until we cook a certain state and we are ready to step into the invisible. So during that time, I explain about the language. It's a language that still is in our, the back of our minds, but we have kind of lost it cognitively, you know? The language of, of, of the sacred poetry, you know, analogies, symbols metaphors that's the way the spirits speak to you you know it's the, the language of the dreams um, and that's the language that you, you'll get important lessons through that language so that wasn't explained a lot of people had amazing important messages but they were unable to 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 understand what they meant so i have been hearing for years jorge you should write a book i wish i knew those things before i had did so many experiences uh, the international community will beneficiate if you put your two cents, you know, in the middle of the whole discussion universally. And so that's, I mean, I, I use creative energy for healing, you know, you have to, and, and the amount of creative energy is limited per day. So it's up to you to what you are going to allocate it. So now that suddenly I was not doing any more healings, I could not travel to the jungle. I was basically on my sofa, you know, watching movies in, 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 in Lima. Um, then I decided to put that energy and, 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 and to finally do the book, you know, after so many, so many years of hearing about that. So that's kind of the story, how the whole, and how I, I came up to here. I, I get it. People talk about shamans, shamanesses, witches, warlocks, wizards, uh, magicians. <laughs> Can you tell me the difference between all of these or are they all the same? Well, for me, I'm none of those. I'm a medicine man. <laughs> and the reason why is because the if you see the translation of most of the words in the Americas in general, mm -hmm. it's person who carries medicine, person who has knowledge, person who knows. Um, so many different expressions, you know. Um, in, in Peru, we have yachat, sinchi yachat, warrior, shaman, warrior, healer, you know. Uh, so 
I prefer to use like a simple translation of an, an, an American expression, which is medicine man, medicine woman, medicine person. Is that different than a sorcerer though? Is, is a sorcerer like a dark version versus a light version? Is that different than a sorcerer though? Is, is a sorcerer like a dark version versus a light version? The thing is that, I mean, words in Spanish like brujo, hechicero, yeah. bruja, is the clash of cultures. Those those words are so important and so uses like the word God or the word love, you know? It means so many different things mm. at the same time. And uh, actually an interesting semantic differentiation would be very interesting. They can apply to different things. And... Uh, and, uh, but what I can say that is very simple to understand, and, and I'm just phrasing what I receive from one of my teachers, is that everything that interferes with the free will of any member of a system when you are trying to assess a case, a situation, will always step into the grayish toward the black. You should not never interfere with the free will and the free choice of anybody into a system. And um, so basically, if you are going to define what is clean to do, if you want to stay as a keeper of the beauty of creation and, 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 and to open the gates of the flow of the force of life, there's only two things you can do. There's a lot of specific techniques and that's extremely rich, but at the end, they all fall into two categories. One is, de-blocking, detaching, pushing away, cleaning things that don't belong to the person, that are external interventions or parasites inside of the person, sometimes voluntary parasites. Mm -hmm. And sometimes um, involuntary too, though, right? You can have yeah, parasites exactly. that someone put in there, right? You have both. And then there's an interesting dis discussion about the word curse because it's, it's used with extremely lightness, and that's, I think, a mistake. Mm. I'm happy to explain about that. In a moment. Please do, yeah. Uh, so one thing is basically cleaning, opening up, detaching, and the other part is nourishing, feeding, nurturing, um, auspiciating the soul consciousness of the person, the soul consciousness that is usually shrunk and under the power of the suffering consciousness, which is the negative ego, is the one that sees life just by ambition, gratification, fears, paranoid thinking, you know, just from your wounds, you create a partial truth that is not the real truth. And that overrules the soul consciousness, that is the one who already knows everything, because he's connected with the soul of everything. So you nourish and you enhance that part. And then you have the shamanic gifts, that might come some spontaneously, or you might proactively bring it for people, for the different patients or clients, uh, that are beautiful, like piñatas that will help in their life, in all aspects of their lives. So it's basically nourishing, giving vitamins to the soul, or cleaning, pushing away negative things. And that's the only thing you can do. Any other thing that will be about forcing any situation, um, and involves manipulating people's will, even if it looks good from the outside, you should not, do not. There are a very meaningful number of, of Western energy workers who don't know what you just said. 
and they'll come in and their intention is good, but they take away free will from uh, from you or from others. They impose and it, it doesn't seem like that works in the long term, but it works in the short term. And I think there's a, a lack of knowledge that comes from a, a true lineage of, of learning in the jungle from people who have spent decades on it. I'm, I want to yeah. get your take on something. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Um, when I had that first ayahuasca experience 23 years ago, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I was fortunate because uh, the the shaman put a ring of stones around where he was doing the ceremony. And afterwards, I actually felt pretty good. I, I wasn't throwing up like most people. And mm-hmm. it was only me and another person doing it. But I said, I'm going to go for a hike. And, and he almost tackled me. And he said, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean? I feel fine. I'm not high. Like I can touch my nose. I, I'm okay. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but you're still open. And if you if you cross this circle that I put in place to protect you, other things will stick to you. And it's really hard to get them off. And I thought it was crazy at the time because I was a little bit uh, younger and more egotistical. What hey, happens if someone does ayahuasca without appropriate protections in place? What are the yes. risks? He's right. I mean, when you do in the beginning, you know, because when you do, I mean, I don't call it ayahuasca. I got the sacred plants or the brew, yeah. you know, the, the healing brew, because there's so many other plants and we keep respect for all of them. Uh, um, Thank you. Yeah. So, oh, that's fine. Uh, um, but I understand what you mean. So um, in the beginning, the journey starts looking inside. That's why usually you work in the night, because it enhances the inner look. There's no light, so there's no stimulation for your eyes. You are forced to go into self-reflection. And then during those times, um, you should stay in the circle. And, you know, part of the shamanic uh, craft is about becoming a weaver, because you have to weave the space around and it takes about half an hour to do it properly. So, and that, that includes even the section for the restroom where people go to pool or, or whatever outside. Everything is included in the cocoon that you live. And inside that cocoon, nothing that is not for healing can come in. If something comes from the outside, it will always be allowed for a purpose because the healing family, you know, the spirits of the lineage are watching what you're doing. So they are there. They are just keeping the space too. Uh, so if you are in doing that type of ceremony, you should stay into the sacred space. But then later when people are more experienced, more seasoned, and they have worked, because in the beginning, everything is about your past. Mainly. Mm-hmm. You might get lessons and revelations, but the main subject is basically your past, yes, the suffering consciousness, but the patterns of your personality and the baggage of, of your painful experiences. But then Later, after you do that several times and you develop what I call the internal placement, is that you know already how to place yourself as an observer of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and you have already done your big purchase, so you are not overwhelmed anymore. Then another phase of the craft comes, which are the walkabouts. When you walk in nature with the plants, with your eyes open, in order to see the invisible landscape and learn from it. And uh, actually, there is a hinge practice in between, is that usually you take the plants after dark, not even at dusk. You have to wait until the rules of the night are well set. 
uh, you know, the, the transitional time between the light of the sun and the darkness, you know, the, the, the coming of the stars, is like the rules are intermediate. So there is a lot of things that come in and out there. It's a little mm-hmm. bit like commuting in a train. It's not the perfect quiet. We need the precise rules of, of the universal setting. So you do that in the night. And then later on, when people have done it several times and the, the medicine person have observed that the person is already rolling, is, is no, knows how to swim, you know, in the pool, then you will start a ceremony by probably 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. Because the purpose of that is to wait for the first rays of the sun and understand the meaning of the sun, uh, the, the understanding of what daylight means. I think I've done that at Burning Man a couple of times. <laughs> or you Why might not? be on some certain medicines and you might be up until the sun comes over. It's pretty spiritual stuff, yeah. actually. Yeah, and then you start to see all the change of the patterns in yeah. the visible and then the, the sun comes. And then after that, you once you understand that and you do two or three times, then you start doing the walkabouts. And you can also do walkabouts later on with moonlight and everything. So that's a completely different practice. I will subscribe by what the the shaman told you at the time, because probably you still have to work more or you were still very open, and then he was probably working out the right space. And and, and, and it's, 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 it's just a process, you know? I'm thinking of a, of a certain guy who's... It was a highly traumatized person who's clearly very bullied, uh, other traumas, you know, semi-successful entrepreneur mm-hmm. does, oh, two or 300, uh, maybe more uh, journeys uh, with all sorts of, of uh, psychedelics mm-hmm. and then says, I'm a shaman and is now administering uh, ayahuasca and other plant medicines to, you know, other, I, I believe he's kind of targeting, you know, multimillionaires and billionaires. Mm. What are the risks of, of someone who, who basically has done a lot of drugs but hasn't had a shamanic initiation? What are the risks of them serving plant medicines to others? I mean, every case is different, you know. I, I have met people who have told me the plants have have told me the spirit of the plan has told me that I should give it to other people that I should. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing you can say about that. Just respect the opinion. The only thing is that uh, there are so many cases to resume it. Basically, a lot of people have a lot of psychological, psychotic cracks in their brains. Yeah. And this society, I mean, this is another big discussion, contains a lot of schizophrenic, you know, things. You are told contradictory messages from from very powerful sources in the Western society, in the modern society. And those contradictions that you are forced to live with create fractures inside. Most people who have had the chance to have love in their life, who actually have love today, have love for themselves, they can navigate through that and have like a good life, you know? But there's a, a lot of people who doesn't. So the plans will open up so powerfully, you know, that uh, some of those cracks can get worse. So many cases I have seen in other countries, I have had to fix things, things happening in Peru, coming out with people coming out with the delirium persecution, you know, delirium, and then uh, having hallucinations, unable to function. So you might be lucky when you work with people who can really hold themselves together, 
But mm. if you have a few cases that are borderline, you might probably harm them if you are not able to move the healing force. The healing force is a gift from nature. The plants can help you in many ways, but the healing force you acquired on a different space that working with the plants. And also you have the force that another medicine person has passed you, you know, it's a gift that you receive. And then you keep it inside of you and that allows you to really pull the strings on the invisible. That's the craft, it's, it goes to initiation. And, uh, and uh, so if you have not received that, on another hand, you also have a spontaneous possibilities. I'm thinking about Edgar Cayce, you know, the great mystic, mm -hmm. you know, one of the greatest U.S. mystic people who just suddenly got it one day, you know, was there for him. So every case has to be seen, you know, on, on a particular case. The other thing, too, is that you have to keep yourself teachable and you should put yourself in the hands. It's the same as psychotherapy. You should put your, yourself in hands of other people that you have an intuition or you respect to periodically. And I do that myself. I have to. It helps me so much to keep it on, on the rail, you know. You write in your book about a fake healer in Lima. And, and I know the the U.S. is plagued with what I'm going to call fake healers right now um, who, who do not have even good intent sometimes and, and certainly haven't developed the healer mm -hmm. energy that you're talking about. But they probably believe they have, but they haven't. And they're going out mm -hmm. there and, and you know having all sorts of yeah. ceremonies. I'm, I'm actually really concerned about that because of some of the effects that you just talked about. But you even ran into a fake healer. Tell me the story of your fake healer in Lima. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Tell me the story of your fake healer in Lima. At the time, you know, I was in martial arts and I was not at all into this world at all. And then these two ladies' friends asked me to go kind of a supportive presence, you know, kind of, I mean, says bodyguard, but I was kind of just there just in case, you know. And um, basically this person, this old lady, uh, very strong character, you know, a lot of jewelry, speaking very strongly. You could see that she was playing like a psychological uh, overpowering of people, you know, and everybody was so respectful, so frightened of her. And actually during the night, you know, she was singing and people were saying their things and putting envelopes. And then, uh, then suddenly things, we were super dark. And then suddenly, suddenly you were hearing things just falling into the floor. And then after a round, they were turning on the lights and you had all these objects that were apparently buried, that she was supposedly materializing and taking out from where they were buried. So you have these bottles with dark fluids or these puppets with things. And, 
And then she was saying, I'm taking these things out. Somebody, I mean, she was playing a lot the frightening card by saying, you know, people have cursed you and then I'm taking that, you know. And it was so obvious that on the roof, you know, it was a panel that was kind of a trap door there, you know. Mm. And and um, But for me, the value of the experience was not so much the anecdotic part, which is that the thing was like that, you know. It was to suddenly see the credulity of people, the fact that people in pain will put themselves through things that are not even reasonable, you know. And even myself, I find constantly challenges, people who have heard about what I do and didn't want to see me, but they really come with a lot of, of, of strong challenges. And uh, there's not a problem at the end is, you know, just do it and you'll see, you know, the fact that you can work with a healing force in a non-cognitive channel makes that you can work with somebody who doesn't speak your language. Somebody who can be in coma. So many people that are close to death, you know, they are, they, they are impaired. Um, or somebody who doesn't tell you anything, you know? So, um, I mean, yeah, the, the, that's why I have chosen this proposition, you know, that this in the book is very short on the book, and I, I want to deploy it later on on a larger uh, work, is a spiritual minimalism. Mm-hmm. If you strip out the ritual, because ritual is mainly for the mind, it works great, and why not, you know? It helps a lot of people. But it works for the mind. It has to be understood as a tool for the mind to put you on the right mindset for something. But the same way, it can put you on the wrong mindset because it can put you, you know, as an unempowered uh, acceptance of whatever being. So if you strip things and you keep the minimum necessary ritual, then what is left is the essence. If Mm -hmm. the essence is there, then it can be felt it's a reality, and it's also, again, educational. People can really see, oh, there's true, there's a real invisible world. There is a real force that can connect and that can go deep and modify things in people. It's a force that I think science might be able to touch one day, but this is still far. I, I think we might be getting closer on the science front than a lot of people think. Um, mm-hmm. th- there's been research globally. Uh, Russia probably did some of the best research on this, even going back in the yeah. 60s and 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of research in China around Qigong and looking at the electrical and magnetic and other energetics of it. So there's right. these bodies of knowledge, but it hasn't been brought together. There is a lot of interest. There's a lot of very intelligent people trying to, to understand but the thing is that, for example, one of the big frontiers is the mapping of the functioning of the brain, you know, and they are mapping basically electrical fields and connections and the grooves that get, you know, made on the brain and everything. But one field that has not yet been worked well, if I think, are the emission. They are not even waves, but the forces that the brain can emit that is, it doesn't, are not located inside of the physical brain. So they cannot be taken by regular imagery. And I'm not talking about those aura pictures that are basically are a translation of an electrical current into colors, which is kind of not a real picture. Uh, but I'm talking about, uh, I mean, to say it in a different way. I will say it in a completely different way. When you read the ancient books that they speak about the powers of the yogis or, or the mystic things, you know, they speak about 
by location, they speak about changing the shape, the size, and things like that. All those things, in my opinion, are translation of the world of the visions because everybody was doing the plans, their own plans, but everybody was doing it, really. If you really look deeply, and it's again another discussion. So what happens is that when you work in a ceremony, when I focus into somebody, the person will feel me on their side, will hear my voice on their side, might even hear the touch, but I'm not moving, I'm here. And I'm deploying like a carpet energy that lifts everybody's again form of the weaving. There's a lot of weaving in shamanism. So this is not about the electrical currents of my wave. It's really something spatial connection. And that that when I am speaking about the doctors, we cannot really think about what will be the way to measure that, to assess that from because it's not electricity, you know. It, it's interesting. Uh, one of my companies called 40 Years of Zen does electrical mapping for altered states, including shamanic states. And, and we teach people how to do that. We've had about 1,500 entrepreneurs and like high performance people come through over the years. There's a lot of personal development work that happens at the same time that you're getting a picture of your brain. And I've had some very powerful uh, people come through, energetically very powerful medicine people. And a substantial number of them, when I say, all right, do do your thing, they do it, and the equipment fails. <laughs> and it happens reliably. Um, two of my friends um, who, who have big names cannot use wireless microphones because when they go into their full power, wireless stops working, and all of their audio-video people just know you have to have a wired microphone for them. And... I found that really frustrating because when I would try to measure it electrically, uh, it, it's it's not that it's too powerful, it, it's that the equipment fails and you have to reboot it. And it happens over and over and over to the point that it's not a joke. And some of these okay. people carry four cell phones because one of them is always going to break and they just keep rotating through. Uh, do you experience that? Does that sound crazy to you? No, no, it happens often. Actually, my grandmother from my mother's side um, I mean, I'm talking about the 70s, early 80s, when she was approaching the TV set many times, it was just getting blurred. And we yeah. were getting electric shocks from her all the time, you know. Um, no, no, I have, right now I'm, I'm doing this because actually with the engineer, we couldn't have the headphones connected, or at least the computer, I don't know, but didn't, they didn't work. No, that happens all the time. I don't know exactly, I don't try to make a theory of it. Uh, um, but I mean, besides, what I'm saying is that it's something more subtle than just the electrical thing. It has to be something else, but I don't know what it is. It works across the planet, and magnetic and electrical fields drop off at a, a cube of distance. So it, it's not that it couldn't be those, because an electrical field continues, the one you're making in your brain continues to the ends of the universe. It just takes time and becomes so faint that you'd have to be pretty powerful to pick it up. But right. There, it is entirely possible, and some listeners may just think I'm crazy, but I'm not, and, and to have a, a connection with someone mm -hmm. across the planet, a real-time connection where you have a dream, they're in it, or um, you know, they, they have an intense experience, you pick it up. I have one friend I'm thinking of, I know when they're doing drugs because I feel it, and it's the weirdest thing, but I feel it, right? And I am not an expert in this stuff. I just know more than the average bear. You're far better trained, and you know if you tune into someone that you can pick up what's going on with them, right? And that's not electrical. It's not magnetic. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. I mean, everybody has these experiences about, for example, somebody is staring at you on the back and then you feel it on the back of the neck and then you turn, you know, or mm -hmm. you know that the phone is going to ring. And, and uh, uh, everybody has had in, in their lives so many things like that, you know. And and then the, the thing about connection, you know, that um, things come suddenly out of the blue. Um, and then... I mean, what what's that? You know, I don't have an explanation. What I what I am daring to say in the book a couple of times is that emotions, you know, the things that we deal with, the the things that we clear, the heavy energies, are more close to matter than energy. Because in shamanism, you assess them as matter. You cut them, you slice them, you suck them, you move them, you you break them. They are like artifacts or solids that you move you know I'm, I'm myself for example i am i'm already i'm all the time liking things like uh, glass artifacts you know like those murano you know uh, uh, blown glass things because the world in where i move when i'm into the invisible is the ver this very amoeba jellyfish kind of way this one of the ways it manifests so I'm moving stuff that are like jellyfish, you know, like pieces of things like that, like like soft solids. And uh, uh, not all the sentiments are like that, but heavy emotions, you know, like terror, like trauma, like in intense guilt, anxiety, you feel them as solids. So it's kind of an intermediate kind of a spiritual plasmatic thing. Um, I mean, I don't know, I can move it, but I don't know how to explain it. But then you have other things that are extremely more subtle. And, and the fact that the suffering consciousness is a victim of time, sees time as an enemy. So everything has a moment, is thinking about the future, trying to change the past. But the soul consciousness is also under the, 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 the domain of time and space, but in a way more stretchy way. So I don't know if instead of vibrations that could be measuring, is more the approach or the angle that we connect with the setting of the universe, the dimensions. Uh, and also, I don't like some people speak about the multiverse when they have like some visions of the future or things like that that are quite common in my profession. But uh, I don't like to call it the multiverse either because it keeps a certain arrogance that saying, we know this universe, so it cannot be this universe, it has to be another multiverse, mm -hmm. you know, so we call it the multiverse because actually we know what this universe is, but actually, I mean, it's not the multiverse, it's like we are still just, you know, just just touching a very small reach of this world, you know, of this true universe. I, I love that perspective. Yeah, until you know this universe, how do you know if you're in a different one versus just seeing more of this one? And there's some there's some philosophical digging to be done there. You've, uh, this is actually your first podcast ever. Thank you for, uh, for honoring me uh, with your, uh, with your presence. Oh, and, I'm very happy. Uh, you've done some other interviews though, uh, that are, are more written. And in one of them, you talked about electricity and what you've seen electricity do now that we have led flashlights and you know, things that, that can hold a charge for a long time. What has mm -hmm. electricity done in in the communities where you live? Well, I mean, in my community and the other ones on the shore, there is no permanent electricity yet. Um, people have cell phones that they charge when they can, where they can. 
so often they go to larger cities for buying, for selling their goods, you know, their pineapples, their, their coal. Uh, and a lot of the young people have uh, cell phones. Uh, but it's going to come. Half of the, of the communities, half of the population is completely pro-electricity. They want to watch their movies on DVDs and things like that. Uh, so it's going to come. Um, I have a um, very philosophical approach about electricity. I think electricity was always known, not necessarily to the form of alternate electricity, you know, and can be transmitted for long spaces. But the ancients, what they were calling the sacred fire, was electricity, was mm. not a sacred fire. Prometheus is punished because he steals the fire from the gods. It's not fire. Fire was known long time before. They are talking about the, the possibility of transmitting the electricity that you receive by lightning. You know? Myself, twice, I have not been hit by lightning, but twice I have been very close. One time I was probably at 50 yards in the plains in, in, in the highlands when I was in my 17, 18 years old, and lighting came on the ground. And for an instant, I, I mean, I saw the whole thing lit and I had like a pink filter in my eyes and I was seeing things like pinkish for, for a couple of hours and my whole sensation and perception changed completely. So the ancient certainly knew electricity as static form, probably direct current, many other forms that probably we are unaware, you know, of, of, of grounding ways and things like that. The, this is the thing. It was the sacred fire. Prometheus got punished because probably humans, we should have never embraced electricity as a tool or we were never ready spiritually to embrace the powers of electricity. The flux of electrons, which is right now the main power, you know, that exists and the power that is having a strong uh, uh, very strong people and forces interested in controlling can create worlds. We are seeing that already. The question is, what kind of world, worlds can we create when we are using these forces and, and, and working these tools from our suffering consciousness, from our collective suffering consciousness? what I want, the way I want it, how I want it, and the more, the better, and the sooner, the better. When you talk about building worlds, do you mean like the metaverse, like virtual reality worlds, or artificial intelligence? What are you oh, yeah. talking about Yeah, there? and the fact that everything will try to be reduced as an algorithm, converted into an algorithm, express an algorithm. You can express the suffering consciousness as an algorithm. The map of strong emotions and psychological profiles can be done of somebody. But the soul, you know, justice, love, generosity, hospitality, faithfulness, love in all these forms, sacrifice, gratefulness, forgiveness, those cannot be measured, cannot be expressed into, into algorithms. So what we are going to do is basically put away that reality and then just build an artificial reality by things that can be measured and can be expressed in zeros and ones. And that is going to be a great loss. Why do you say that those things can't be measured? Um, with what units can we express 
gratefulness or forgiveness. Well, the fact that I don't have units doesn't mean we haven't invented them yet. I mean, there's all sorts of things that yeah, we've created. Sure. So this is an open call to anyone listening. Hey, come up with a quantifiable way of measuring gratitude so we can uh, measure how grateful all of our politicians are, realize they have no gratitude, and then we can destroy them or something else. But bottom line is I, I actually am I'm working on these problems. And I can tell you that if you use gratitude as a spark to light the fire of forgiveness, yes. you can see exactly what happens in the electrical signaling of someone's brain. Like that's at the center of what I, I teach people. Mm -hmm. And what it looks like is certain frequencies in certain parts of the brain will suddenly lose all their power and the power goes somewhere else in the brain. Mm -hmm. It goes into manifestation, it goes into intuition, or it goes into healing. Right, And the states, the things you see in those states are very similar to what you'll see if there's someone walking around you banging a drum or if you're staring in the fire in the jungle after mm -hmm. you've had something. There's, there's a great relationship between the two, but they're not identical. But they're so close. Yeah. And, and so can I measure it? I can tell you whether someone's experienced gratitude and experiencing forgiveness because of what it quantifiably and permanently, for 90% of people, permanently does to change the basic wiring of how you operate. Yeah, and, the, and the biochemistry too, you know? The, yeah. The substance can be measured. But those sentiments, um, I mean, it's extremely tricky because you, I mean, in human history, there were a lot, science took a certain line, was developed in a certain way because everything that can be expressed into units can be sold. So everything for making big business, you need new fields to allocate units and then create markets. So that's when the scientific mind start to advance. There were a lot of other alternative posturings and, and, and hypotheses that were dropped because they could not match the easy handling of units in order to make great businesses. And that's why, I mean, a lot of the heroes of science, like Newton, you know, like Pascal, like Galileos, they were strong believers into, into the, the invisible. They were strong spiritual people. They believe in soul and they believe in, in, in heaven in a lot of different things. But we have stripped those things out of them and make heroes of the full rational cognitive approach, you know, binary logic approach. And that, that phenomenon happened strongly since the Renaissance and after. We put that the attention in what could be expressed in measurements to the point that if you see, I mean, the perfect philosopher for the Industrial Revolution was Comte, you know, the French guy Comte. Mm -hmm. and basically, he is one of the heads of the, of the current called positivism that says, mistrust anything that cannot be expressed in a scientific law, cannot put on an equation, it cannot be expressed in units. This mm -hmm. is the real reality, let's stay with this. The rest, speculation, leave it there, don't look too much into that. And uh, right now with the possibilities of uh, creating, developing, mimicking, you know, words with, with, with algorithms, um, we can certainly stimulate people. I mean, you tell a story, people will change their emotional field and things like that. But from somebody who sees the, the invisible uh, to a certain extent, from my profession, you know, 
the way those sentiments move and what they can do, it's infinite. It cannot be expressed on a, on a, on a, on a unit because it's, infinite. it's an infinite source of love and of intelligence. It never ends. It's not that if I give this, I will be deployed of some. I will need to re-nourish because I'm getting deployed. It's there. It's infinite. Mm. It exists somewhere. I don't know where it exists, but it can be tapped. Um, so that's what I'm trying to say. But again, we are in the blind. We are really trying to, you know, to push the human understanding each on our different frontiers, you know? One of the biggest learnings for me uh, has been to accept that, that, you can simultaneously be irrational and irrational. You can be cognitive and non-cognitive, but to do it simultaneously on different levels. It took me about three or four years to wrap my head around that and just to recognize that I've got both of those. Mm -hmm. uh, what I had learned, because I actually studied artificial intelligence in my undergrad, and I, I had a big career in tech building stuff that's still around today. And uh, it, it, it's, I took the fully rationalist view and it isn't very functional as a human being, <laughs> but it's highly useful as a human being. So I'm still kind of figuring that one out that how much, how much of us is rational and how much of us is irrational. And I want your take on that. Are we first irrational, then rational? Are we simultaneously both? How does all that work? <laughs> I think intuition is the intelligence of the soul consciousness and binary logic is the intelligence of the suffering consciousness. Phrases like, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or if you are not with me, you are against me, are like Cartesian tables, you know, of, of, of logic, you know, minus plus minus and things like that. Uh, so that's how the suffering consciousness sees things, because it's easy to compartmentalize and easy to move as blocks, you know, squares. When I see people, when I see the containment of the ego of people, uh, we are sitting on a ceremony and I'm checking all of my patients, small group of four, five, eight. Um, I see them inside of kiosks and those kiosks have different layering, different like squarish tents. And in those layering, you can see like screens, if you want, or like tapestry, things that are going on uh, or, 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 or in their minds or about their past. Um, when we move to a different space, during the, the, the because a ceremony with the plant is actually structured. When you move to a different space, those squares disappear and we touch other things about the containment of the heart, what is inside of the heart, not in the mind. So you can allocate the squares better than circles. So the suffering consciousness will always choose the binary logic, what we call rationality. Um, um, but, you know, the ancient Greeks that were about you know, the, the fathers of, of, of reason, as we call them. They were also worshippers of gods and they were believing in epiphany and inspiration and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's part, that part, I will not call it rational. I will call it something else. I like to call it the intelligence of the soul consciousness because I don't have a word for it. And I will reserve the, the concept of irrationality of another space of the suffering consciousness. It's not the articulated space of the suffering consciousness who is able to create all this world and all this technology because he's able to express and, and, and work out perfectly on, on, on binary logic. I will call it rationality when your emotions bend your logic. 
And that's the worst pit of the suffering consciousness. Is when you change the past, you invent things, you lie, you you make things in order to, you lie to yourself in order to feel better in, instead of of of, of, of uh, uh, facing a challenge. So that's irrationality. When you stop functioning uh, in a way that can be related to somebody else, and you are just projecting your own haze of pain. Um, yeah, I've I've had a lot of I've had a lot of employees and team members uh, do that. You know, they 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 don't want to face whatever it is they're doing, so they make up a lot of stories that they sure believe, and that's definitely irrational because people around them see it always, eventually. Yeah, yeah it's a result of the pain, uh, and 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 is for me, it's the lack of training into the internal placement, not to finding the intelligence of your soul. If you know, I'm going to say something that might sound very controversial, but when I see traditional religion, you know, that is really unpopular mm -hmm. today uh, and has done so many mistakes and any, every institution is really, you know, gets corrupted and everything. We all know that. But there were also great people trying to do good things, you know, for the community inside. So the fact that in traditional religion, people are asked to pray one or twice per day and do some other practices like a fasting once per year, a pilgrimage a couple of times in your life. Those practices are there for a very practical purpose, which is no different than shamanism. Shamanism is the, the core, the ancient archaic religion. So those practices are there to help you stop one moment the drive of your suffering consciousness and suddenly stop and connect and look inside and be humble facing, you know, a greater power, call it the divine of the universe or whatever you want. And then try to connect with the people around you, your neighbors, on a particular way um, that is more healthy and more, is more humble. So those practices were put there as a small part of your daily routine or your weekly routine to try to balance and equalize things. But right now we live in times in which you know, we despise all those things and everything. Look the approach about the plants. The plants are becoming another tool for the suffering ego. What I want, the way I want it, how I want it. And actually what happens, and it's extremely beautiful to see, is that when people go for that, and that's okay, they are very welcome. I, never, I will never say no. There's a few reasons why I will say no to somebody coming for a ceremony with me, but not that one they at the same time they will they will work out those things there will be so many amazing gifts that they will open up to a different angle of seeing life that might change also their priority thing as, as, a, as a bonus you know their priority order as a bonus it's very what very beautiful to see it's not me who does it it's just basically the spirits you know the great spirits beautiful uh one of the things that stands out uh, about about your new book, Journeying Through the Invisible, guys, if you're listening and you're looking for the title for it, um, you have a, a theme of respect, like respect for the jungle, respect for respect for the, the plant medicines, uh, and just a, a very, kind of, I'll, I'll say, clean vibe in, in the way you write about it. And part of your work is to protect the traditional ceremonies of ayahuasca uh, versus kind of have them be exploited. How do you go about protecting you know, the right use of ayahuasca versus a misuse? 
Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's, thank you for that question because that's an important intention of the book. You know, I don't want to tell people how to do things, what to do. You know, and and also, you know, in the jungle, even the jungle with Brazil, with Ecuador, Colombia, all our our broader countries, uh, there are so many nations that have different protocols and different ways. You know, the great nations. You know, in Peru, actually, the Shipibo Conibo uh, ethnicity is a great, very advanced nation with great pottery most of the protocols that they use uh, that i see around i think belong to them you know because simply people who learn from who learn from who was exposed to this they have been replicating the protocols uh, uh i learn myself i learn with more like a northern you know thing is different but um the thing is that the plants are extremely fragile been talking about ecosystem, you know, mm-hmm. when those boats come to the jungle full of people for doing the plants, you know, like thousands coming sometimes per month, people sometimes don't think from where those plants come from. There are a lot of, of very, very positive, well-intended efforts to plant and, and breed the sacred plants. There's a lot of young people doing amazing experiences, but it's not enough. And, uh, so I will tell you a reality that happens in my area. There's a couple of communities a little far away, and I know I go there. I have some providers of, of certain plants and breedings there that I use for cooking my medicines. Uh, they have become providers of a lot of very strong commercial lodges. And what I call a commercial lodge will be somebody who has a very strong rotation of people and does ceremonies with large amounts. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 validity of this practice is that it was always done on a small scale. Right. Uh, it cannot be overstretched because also, I mean, a, a medicine person might be able to perform some amazing things about invisible, but we are not superhumans. We cannot do our reach is not infinite. I can follow up probably. I mean, the largest I have ever done is probably, I think once I don't I did thirteen people at the same time. And it was huge and exhaust, super exhausting, you know, to try to really keep, you know, the, all the breaches with everybody at the same time. Uh, so those people who are doing 25, 30, 40, 100 people, 150 people. So that actually is, and I explained that of the book, that is a replication of a different concept, is priest shamanism, mm-hmm. when the purpose is to keep healthy the soul of a community so you give the plants on usually on a more milder preparation and then what you want people is to come together and have like a mystical communal thing because that's part of the healthy healthy keeping you know the the, the keeping the health of a community and then so people connect and then have they can have some messages and things and purges but it's about holding people together and it's beautiful as it is but the purpose of that is not to dig into the trash can of their suffering consciousness. It's not ah. really to open the Pandora's box because then you need a very more particular, cozy, personalized approach. And that is done with very small groups because otherwise you cannot do it. You cannot do it. You, you, yeah. you cannot open up an engine, you know, have like a, a parking lot and work all the engines at the same time. So that is what is called sometimes, I mean, I learned it myself as warrior shamanism, you know, Sinchi Yachak. Sinchi means uh, 
in Quechua uh, uh, warrior. And Quechua has been spread a lot in the jungle too, so it's kind of a, a, com a lot of common terminology. So that particular way of shamanism is practiced usually by somebody who is not like a priest figure on a community, it's more like an isolated person, kind of the cranky master that lives by the waterfall, you know, that, that, mm -hmm. that doesn't want to be with everybody all the time. Those seem to be the most powerful. The 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 large group. In fact, I I had an opportunity to do that, and and my whatever you want to call it, my my soul, my energy said absolutely not. Like you feel called to do a, a plant medicine, or you don't. And my my nervous system says, just don't do that. Like the downside's way bigger than the upside, uh, and it 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 felt very different. That explains it though, because my experiences have been unique and custom versus large scale. But you're arguing there's a use for a large scale thing. It's just not the same experience. It's different. And actually what happens is that, uh, and, and I'm putting a, a, a something on the book that I think a lot of my fellow Peruvian uh, people are not going to like at all. And and, and it, it's, it's based on research is that actually the colonial times were so strong and so efficient to really intertwine with the original culture that a lot of the shamanism that is practiced today in Peru has strong elements of both of two things. The Catholic mass, so a lot of the priest shamanism that is done is, and, and it's sincere, you know, why not? But it's a different thing. So it, it's, it's a replication of what should be a traditional religious, probably medieval ceremony. So it includes a sermon. Sometimes the shaman stops in the middle of the ceremony, the chanting or the drumming, and will give a speech about life and will talk, you know, about his opinions about about life and and, and how to 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 conduct your your life and your things. But traditionally, it's not like that. Everything is telepathic. You say a few things, sometimes extremely strong, that are, have the effect of a whip in order to just help somebody to overcome something, if you say something. If not, everything is through vibration, to voice, drum, and rattles. You know, even before uh, uh, other instruments and, and even wind, flutes, and things like that. When I see myself in my visions, you know, with, with my spiritual teachers, I am in an extremely, extremely archaic space. It's not the Incas, it's not the, the, the Moches, it's not the, the, the Mayas. It's really, in times when everything was about bone, skin, stone, wood. Mm. And that's why I think touches so much a very, very rude archetype, you know, and the language is based on that rude archetype that I can work with people of so many different traditions, people who come to a ceremony and suddenly I see that they are so loaded with the beautiful charge of their ancestry, whatever is Middle Eastern, is European Celtic, or African, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, yeah. So I try to go to the root of the most primal definition of a human in archaic times. Uh, and then the other thing that is also mixed in, the, in, in a lot of the ceremonies that are performed in Peru is um more Moorish uh black magic of spirituality because the Spanish needed a, a lot of easy labor for a lot of things. They needed people who spoke the language. So they imported in different moments of the 300 something years that they had of the colony, they had moments that they imported huge batches 
of Moorish peoples from the south of Spain and the north of Africa. Mm-hmm. And these people came with their practices, came with their books, and a lot of the practices that are done, especially on the coast in certain regions of the Andes, have a strong elements of medieval, you know, southern Spain magic. And and why not? It works too, you know. I'm not saying it's not valid, but it's different. It's different, and from what I can tell. Uh, the very, very early archaic shamanism, and, and this comes from some of the textbooks on it, it, it appears to have spread into the, the bone faith or the pre-Buddhist faith, which is very ancient shamanic. And then it mm-hmm. spread in, in, and changed as humanity moved around the planet. Uh, but there was that common, common nucleus, and that's as far back as I've seen it traced. But it, it looks so different when you end up in Mongolia now. Uh, versus when you end up in South America. But there's enough that if you were to meet a Mongolian shaman, you guys would probably be able to communicate, maybe not with the right, the same language, but you'd mm-hmm. understand the shamanic realms because it appears that they're they're relatively consistent, even though the techniques morph over time. And yeah. I think that's normal and healthy, but it does offend some people because they think, you know, their their tradition is un, is untarnished. But I'm sorry, if you're human and you've been around yeah. it, with people for thousands of years, we evolve. That's what we do. Yeah, it's correct to evolve. It's, it's, it's like music, you know, folklore, so many syncretisms, so many mixtures. For I, myself, I'm extremely pragmatic, and I, I call myself a, a, a spiritual skeptic. I don't buy things that I hear there, even if they sound nice. I only speak about what I have experimented because I think we should contribute each other with our experiences to understand. So I will not speak in languages and expressions that I have not understood myself, learned or uh, or experienced. So what I think is that if you want, there is a universal language that can be assessed in different ways. And as long as there are results that people really get something, then it's all right. And then mm. you have to make your own homework to talking about spiritual minimalism of depuration and try to stay as close as the essence. Because once you add up, you add props and you, and you add roads and, 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 and wrapping to the knowledge, you might fall into already making kind of creating false beliefs, you know? So I try to stay as close as the force of life as I can. I can explain things because I have one foot in both worlds. I got a a European education, you know, and I read something when I was young. Um, But then my life took me somewhere else. So I like to make the bridge, but it's not a bridge about creating new beliefs. I'm not selling a frame of knowledge. I'm basically helping people to connect with their soul with different tools tools that i know and then they will do their their own homework after that well thank you for writing the the textbook for the homework that people can do i uh, i really enjoyed your perspective on on shamanism and on on specifically ayahuasca and plant medicine Uh, the fact that you heard from the medicine keep it in the jungle and that's what you do yeah. Uh, and, I, and I, I would encourage anyone listening who's thinking that you want to try plant medicine, you want to read Journeying Through the Invisible. 
uh, and, and consider what's there and consider what other techniques you might want to do before that to prepare yourself for it because there's a lot you can do. I think you've, you've contributed to the field and I want to thank you for being on The Human Upgrade as your first ever podcast. <laughs> thank you very much. It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. All right, guys, you can find this book anywhere books are sold right now, uh, Journeying Through the Invisible and uh, Shaman Hachumak, H-A-C-H-U-M-A-K. Of course, there'll be links on my blog and all that sort of stuff so you can find the book. Now, you want to take a walk on the wild side that's very approachable, uh, this is the book for you. And if you're saying, I don't know anything about any of this, maybe it's about time you learn something about it because you're not going to be a highly effective biohacker or human being if you ignore the spiritual side of what uh, of what you're here to do and so that's part of what i'm going to be covering for you in the world of biohacking on the show i'll see you on the next episode thank you you're listening to the human upgrade with dave asprey the human upgrade formerly bulletproof radio was created and is hosted by dave asprey The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.